exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. Welcome to this lovely Tuesday night. I am your host, Emily Fox. In U.S. and world news today, researchers in Australia have discovered a secret weakness of one of the ocean's most impressive predators, according to the BBC. Sharks, it seems, are completely colorblind. The scientists who examined retinas of 17 different species of shark discovered that the creatures had only one type of color-sensitive cell, known as a cone cell, in their eyes. Human eyes have three cone cell types, with each type dedicated to receiving either blue, green, or red light. This allows most people to tell the difference between different colored objects. The study was carried out by Nathan Scott Hart and colleagues from the University of Western Australia and the University of Queensland. Dr. Hart is the, said the research could help prevent shark attacks on humans and assist in the development of fishing gear that may reduce the number of sharks that are caught accidentally in long-line fisheries. Former Haitian leader Jean-Claude, or Baby Doc Duvalier, has been taken to court by armed Haitian police, according to the BBC. Mr. Duvalier, who ruled the country for 15 years before being ousted in 1986, made a surprise return to Haiti on Sunday. It is unclear whether he has been arrested or charged over crimes he is accused of committing under his regime. Chinese President Hu Jintao has landed in the U.S. for a four-day state visit in a crucial meeting of one of the world's two biggest powers, according to the BBC. Analysts say Mr. Hu's visit is the most important by a Chinese leader in 30 years given China's growing military, economic, and di- diplomatic clout. Relations have been strained on issues from currency uh, controls and trade disputes to human rights in Taiwan. Talks are also expected to include North Korea's nuclear activities. Shares in technology giant Apple dropped as much as 6% in New York trading after boss Steve Jobs took an indefinite medical leave, according to the BBC. While Mr. Jobs is continuing as chief executive and will be involved in any major decisions, day-to-day running has passed to Tim Cook. The news came yesterday when markets were closed. And on Exposure Tonight, you can hear a conversation I have with about um, MSU research on malaria in Africa. I'll also be talking to a... Um, representative for Zipcar to talk about MSU's new car sharing program and also to know what's up to date and what you can hear on Exposure every Tuesday. You can keep up to date with Twitter and the name is Impact Exposure as well as become a fan on Facebook. But right now in the studio is local guitarist and singer Ray Camillet to perform and talk about his upcoming show at Espresso Royale, which is this Saturday from 7 to 10 p.m. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So talk about where talk take us through your life and, and your exploration of music. Well, that's interesting. I think I first fell in love uh with some kind of music when I was fifteen. I fell in love with the Chicago blues. And, you know, being an immoderate person, I went crazy and found all the blues I could. And that kind of turned me on to the country blues and the Delta blues. And then I got interested in all country music including the white music, Doc Watson and Chet Atkins and that kind of thing. One thing leads to another, you know. And and you've always lived in Michigan? Yep. I've never missed a Michigan winter. Excellent. <laughs> I don't know if excellent is the word. <laughs> now, you perform many genres and have yeah. a few different bands you play, and talk about that. Well, I like a lot of different kinds of music, uh, and I insist on playing them, all the ones that I like, and that doesn't really mark it very well. I mean... Some musicians play some things and not others, and uh, so there's, like, I can't sing Brazilian love songs in my Irish band, for instance. So I tend to have a bunch of different bands instead. But what are you going to do, watch TV, you know? And who do you perform with the most? Gee, well, that's a good question. Uh, Probably my trio, my jazz trio. Ray Camilly and his Red Hot Peppers. And his Red Hot Peppers. And I was, I was looking at your website, and I was wondering, who came first, the Red Hot Peppers or the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Oh, the Red Hot Peppers did, but it wasn't my Red Hot Peppers. It was Jelly Roll Morton and his Red ah. Hot Peppers back in the 1920s. And we took that name in 1982 when I started the band, 
And if I'm not mistaken, the Red Hot Chili Peppers started in 1983. Mm. But we have had people come to our concerts expecting it's the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and they were sorely disappointed. <laughs> um, so one of your trumpet players played with the Harry Connick Jr. Orchestra? Oh, he was the lead trumpeter wow. with Harry Connick. He's also been the lead trumpeter with Winton and anybody you can name. So he's he, one, of, he's he, one of the great trumpeters, Walter White. And he lives. In, does he live in the area? He lives in New York now. He was from Ferndale for a, for a long time. That's where he was born. Um, well, you know, a lot of great musicians pass through Michigan, that's for sure, of all kinds. So I guess to, to start things off, do you want to play us a little tune? Sure. I got something for you. to say to you want you to know I got them bye-bye blues that time is the right time to be with the one you love, the one you love. when you're out late at night mama I can't rest Baby, won't I? That time is the right time to be with the one you love. Grab my hat this morning. She followed me to the door. She said goodbye, Daddy. I hate. That time is the right time to be with the one you love. studio is Ray Camillet. He is a local guitarist and singer, and he'll be performing at a special royale this Saturday from 7 to 10 p.m. So, Ray, was that your song? Oh, no. Nance Lipscomb. Ah, okay. Uh, Nance Lipscomb was one of those old black guitar players in 1960 when he was 80 years old. They went with him to, with, to him with a recording machine and said, play something, and he played like that. But I bet he was really a buck when he was 25 years old. So I noticed the sound is very, it's very metallic. And um, I noticed you were wearing some things on your fingers. Can you tell us what those are? Steel finger picks. Okay. And what, what's loud. the purpose? Oh, to well, make they, it louder. They save your fingers. They give you a great way to rip the strings, if you know what I mean. Uh, if I do it with my bare fingertips, it's much softer. Mm -hmm. If I played Brazilian music, I might play it like this. No metallic sound, right? Right. Well, also, you were using a lot of harmonics, weren't you? Sure. And does that help with the with the finger picks at all? Doesn't make much difference for no? that. 
cheap tricks. It's all smoke and mirrors, you know. Cheap tricks, cheap tricks. So you're also a music educator as well. Uh, it's more music history, I think you'd say. A lecturer. Yeah. I ha I'm particularly inter interested in the international history of slavery and the development of American music from it. And why is that? Well, I used to play with Howard Armstrong, Louis Bluey, uh, uh, really a kind of astonishing character, a uh, man who was 96 when he died in 2003, and he just played all these songs I never heard or dreamed of before. And uh, it really spurred me to study the music a lot in earnest. And uh, as time goes on, you just learn things that you figure other people would like to know. And they generally do. Yeah. And so. tell some bits of information that, that you relay at some of your lectures. Um, you have one lecture called Freedom, Slavery, and the Roads of American Music. Well, uh, for instance, um, after the American Revolution, the British were very resentful of the American Revolution because there was no slavery in Britain and the British were want to point out to the Americans the contradiction in their constitution that provided for political freedom and human chattel slavery. And it, you know, I'm sure most Americans were quite aware of the contradiction too. But the British developed a kind of literature uh, in plays, in broadsides and songs of the unfortunate Negro in which Africans were portrayed as heroic, sensitive people who were duped by the Americans on their plantations. And when those acting troops brought those plays to the United States, the Americans hated it. They really hated it, and they, it was the British pointing a finger at the Americans uh, to the point where they would riot. They would beat up the cast and burn the theater. And uh, Charles Matthews, one great British thespian, one night was doing one of these plays in blackface. That's how the British did these plays. And he said it was a tragic play, and, and he could tell the audience was getting angry. And he, and he cracked a joke, and the place fell out. Hmm. And all the tension was gone, and he said in so many words, I realized at that moment that the future of blackface entertainment in America would not be in tragedy. It would be in comedy. And this was the birth of the blackface minstrel. And all the stuff that followed with that, including, of course, a, an astonishingly racist kind of literature that developed from it, too. So why do you think it's important to be conscious of the history behind music? Oh, well, music's just part of the whole thing. You know, it's part of the whole society. And there's, there's a lot of big political lessons to learn uh, in understanding all political institutions, slavery among them. You know, there's a lot to learn about freedom by studying slavery. There's a lot to learn about liberty by studying slavery. Uh, and all of those things are related. You know, uh, Orlando Patterson, the great Harvard scholar, uh, really believes that it was the Greek women who discovered what freedom was uh, in ancient Athens because they were the ones who were juxtaposed in between the men who could go to the polis and the slaves who were stuck not just at home but as slaves. The women had this kind of status in between. And, uh, well, you know, that's one example. Uh, there's, uh, history is replete with it. And none of the human condition has been left behind. We are still greedy. We are still tragic. We are still enslaved. We are still free. All those things are still here. And, and how does that change the way that you play music or that you connect with music, knowing all this history behind it? Does well, it... I think, uh, you know, I have an aesthetic about American music. I really believe that um, the early music was the shot across the bow of what liberty was. And I mean, the slaves singing about God, the spirituals, and the blues was the first slave art. In societies before that, the slaves never lived long enough to really create a coherent body of art. And every generation of African-American and American, too, because this is the land of liberty, um, every generation shows new aspects of liberty. It also shows up as new aspects of alienation. They both go hand in hand. You know, the freedom that you have is, is a necessary break of a relationship, which is why you are free. And yet it still results in kind of added alienation 
hey, you know, the Internet's a pretty great example of all that. There's so much at your fingertips, and people are so much further away at the same time. So with that, do you want to sing another song for us? Sure, sure. Let's see. Let's make it something different. Not so blue. So here's a little tune that comes from Chief O'Neill. Captain Francis O'Neill, who had the largest collection of Irish music in the history of the music. O'Neill collected over 2,000 jigs, airs, and reels, and he did it at a time when things Irish were considered not worth saving. This was about 100 years ago. Uh, interestingly, O'Neill did not collect his huge volumes in Ireland. Captain Francis O'Neill was the chief of police for the city of Chicago in charge of the drunk tank. And if a, an Irishman came in drunk, if he could play O'Neill a tune he didn't know, he'd let him go. I'm sure many tunes were made up on the spot. Here's a little one that O'Neill collected in 1903 called Dancing the Baby. song it sounded like actually before i jump into that i should let our listeners know in the studio is ray camillay uh, he is a local singer and guitarist and he'll be performing at espresso royale this saturday from 7 to 10 p.m but listening to that song um there's that high melody and then a lower melody and then a big fat strum in between it seems like those two melodies the high and the low are kind of mocking each other and then the big strum is kind of the mediator in between it, it's a call and response and you know i started playing that way after my first trip to Scotland, because when you hear all that music, it's got this huge drone mm -hmm. in the background. And the drone is almost like this Greek chorus, that the little play, the little interplay between the two voices uh, is unified by. Yeah. So as I said, you're performing at Espresso Royale this Saturday. Um, where do you usually perform here in Michigan? Uh, well, you know, things are changing, right? Uh, if you go to the Wharton Center or... Uh, the Macomb Center, or the big art places. This is where my jazz band used to play. They just don't have the money they used to have. Mm -hmm. A lot of it was state funding. Um, so everything changes. Uh, I lecture a lot more now. Um, but we do play uh, what we just did, something at St. Clair County Community College. I had a real nice jazz band for a concert there. And will you be lecturing anytime soon? Actually, on the 20th, I'll be at the Rochester Hills Library, uh, with the same talk, which is called now World Slavery, the Haitian Revolution, and the Rise of American Music. And then I have some uh, places in Boston area that I'll be uh, next month, too. And where do you think is your favorite performance or venue you've ever performed in? The Sheboygan Opera House in Sheboygan, Michigan. Hmm. Oh, God, it's the perfect place. The um, seat's about 500. There is no flat surface in the whole place. It was built in 1888. Uh, was built for sound. I, I swear Sheboygan must have been a really wealthy place at the time. Uh, all the big white pine trees were being shipped out of there, and uh, there was people with money then. Um, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful place. can't say enough about it. I've played there maybe five times in 20 years, and I'd do it ten times in a row tomorrow, if you let me. 
Well, excellent. A nice northern Michigan. I just got back from a nice trip up there this weekend. In northern Michigan, that is. So, mm-hmm. so with that, do you want to take us out with a song? Sure. Let's see. What'll it be? I've tried to explain that you are my heaven on earth. Still, I've tried in vain, for words can't explain my love and its worth. This much I know is true, there'll never be another you. That's why I'd work for you. I'd slave for you. I'd be a beggar or a knave for you. If that isn't love, it will have to do. Until the real thing comes along. I'd gladly move the earth for you. To prove my love dear and it's worth for you if that isn't love it will have to do until the real thing comes along with all the words dear at my command I'll try make you understand I'll always love you darling come what may my heart is yours what more can I say I'd sigh for you I'd cry for you I'd tear the stars down from the sky for you If that isn't love It will have to do Until the real thing comes along Until the real thing comes along Well, in the studio is Ray Camillet, and he will be performing this Saturday at Espresso Royale from 7 to 10 p.m. And where is Espresso Royale? Is it just here on Grand River? East Lansing, uh, 1500 Lake Lansing Road. Oh, Lake Lansing, the new location. Okay. Um, And for more information, you can go to raycamillet.com, and that's uh, R-A-Y-K-A-M-A-L-A-Y.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ray. Thanks, Emily. You're listening to Impact Exposure. First floor. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you. Cause I <coughs> thought maybe we could... Uh, would you ever want to... Um, I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. That's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No, don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free. Studies show that three quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. 
Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and on the phone is Richard Paisner. He is the account manager for the university sector of Zipcar, which is the new car sharing program that is now offered at Michigan State University. Welcome to the show, Rich. Thanks, Emily. Appreciate you having us on. So I guess to start things out, how and when did Zipcar begin? Well, Zipcar was initially founded in, in 2000 as an alternative, a, a new category in transportation truly designed to offer a flexible, convenient, affordable option for, for urban dwellers. You know, essentially what we're looking to do is really give people who are living in areas that had great public transportation an alternative to car ownership. Um, we've grown up since then, and now we've, we've expanded, and we just last week uh, landed in East Lansing. We're thrilled to be here. And where did it first begin? We first started in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's where our headquarters is currently right now in 2000. Uh, our first partnership was with MIT, uh, and we've expanded now to over 225 universities and, and growing. Wow. Wow. So Great. tell us, how does, how does Zipcar work? How can you reserve a car, and what happens after that? Sure. Zipcar is car sharing, so it's different than rental. It's different than ownership. The way it works is... We have 500,000 Zipsters, is what we call our members. People sign up to, for membership. Uh, they, they pay a fee at the university. Um, the university, it's $35. You become a member. We then will send you what's called the Zip Card. It's a membership card. That's your access to all your vehicles. Once you receive that card in the mail, you have access to all of our cars. So on, on the university, we have six cars currently right now. Within our network is 8,000. So students between the ages of 18 through 20, can reserve the six cars on the Michigan State campus. Once you turn 21, happy birthday. You have access to 8,000 cars around the world. Wow. So the way it works, it's pretty simple. You go online and you say, I want, I want a car. Now, each car is individually named. And the cool thing about this is you reserve the exact car. So on Michigan State's campus, we have a car named Irvin, aptly named after one of your magical alumni. So you say, I want Escape Irvin from 3 to 5 tomorrow. Hmm. At 3 o'clock, you walk up to Irvin, and, and at Zipcar, we call all of our cars by their names. So when someone needs an oil change, when a car needs an oil change, it's Irvin needs an oil change. So you walk up to Irvin at 3 o'clock, and Irvin has his own reserve spot. And I don't know if you've seen them as you walk around campus. They're all big signs. The signs say, Zipcar lives here, no parking, tow away 24 hours a day. So you walk up to Irvin, and you put your zip card, again, your membership card, up a little, above a little sensor on Irvin's windshield. If it's your turn to drive and the, and the car will recognize it, the computer in the car will recognize it, it will unlock the door and the ignition. The keys are inside. Drive away. Wow. It's, it's quite simple. I mean, it's, it's very fun. You know, it's an opportunity. Get off campus, whether, it's, whether you're living in the city or on campus. Just go. Do what you need to do. Get off and, and explore. It gives people the opportunity to have a car that either can't afford it or just truly don't want the hassle of having it. Now, what type of cars are they, and where are they located here at MSU? Yeah, that's a good question. On, on Michigan State's campus, we have two different types of car. We have uh, Toyota Prius, which is hybrid, which is categorized as Smartway Elite by the EPA. And then we also have um, three Ford Escapes. And I was just in the Ford Escapes. So I was just on campus last week. They're brand, all six cars are brand new and beautiful. Um, so they, they, we put them in what's called pods, which is two or more cars together. So on campus, there's three pods of two. So two at lot 41, uh, right near the planetarium, uh, two in, um, in lot 74 near Holden Hall, and then two in lot 50, right essentially outside the International Center. Uh, you can't miss them. There's big signs right there. And do you think that six cars are enough for MSU's campus? Yeah, what we do is we really have very, very strong, robust systems. Again, you know, this is something we, all we do is car sharing. We've been doing this for 10 years. So what we do is we take a look and we, we monitor utilization daily. So if we see that there's a pickup in utilization and that people are looking for cars but can't always get them, we'll speak to the university and we'll say, hey, you know, we think it's, think it's time to add more vehicles. And the university has told us that you know, they're anxiously looking to add more vehicles as well. So as soon as we see a need, I assure you we'll add some more. 
And how, based on you say that you have zip cars at was it two hundred different universities? Yeah, two hundred twenty-five. What do what do most of the college students use the zip cars for? Yeah, it's a good question. It, you know, I guess it's a think about what you get off campus for. It, it's going to the supermarket. It's going to the movies. It's a lot of a lot of our campus members, a lot of our campus zipsters use these cars for for jobs as well as internships. So this is just, you know, our, our slogan is wheels when you want them. That's essentially what it is. So anything that you would, that you can't get to via the bus or, or a train or you don't want the hassle of taking a taxi, that's what Zipcar is there for. So can you give us a few stats on some of the environmental benefits of Zipcar? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's, the stats go on and on, but some of the, the big ones that jump off, Frost & Sullivan, an independent research firm, has done study after study, and each time it comes back saying that for every one zip car in a major market, it takes 15 cars off the road. So quick math, on Michigan State's campus, after a year, we'll have removed at minimum 90 personally owned vehicles. Wow. The way it works is, you know, people, people can reserve back to back to back. So if you want to have it from 10 to 12, I can then reserve the car from 12 to 3. Someone else can reserve it from four to six, and it just goes on and on and on. So that people are able to reduce the amount of vehicles miles, vehicle miles traveled because what they're saying is they're grouping their trips together. So the stat comes back that they can reduce their VMT, as it's, as it's called, by 50%, which is huge. You think about the CO2 reduction just from people driving around now, when, what our zipsters do is they're very savvy in the way they reserve. So rather than saying, well, I'll go to the supermarket on Tuesday, and then you know, maybe I'll sort of drive around a little bit and then go uh, to the movie on, on Monday, what they might do is group it all together. So they know they have a zip car, their quote-unquote personal car. They're taking Urban out for a five-hour chunk. They're going to do it all right there. So there's no aimless driving. When they don't need it, they, they just... They return it. That's it. Well, what is your prediction for how much Zipcar may grow in the next five years or so? You know, it, it's tough to tell. I would say that certainly we'll grow with as uh, as the need is there. So as we see people getting excited about about Zipcar and, and adopting the car-free lifestyle, we will we will certainly be there to support Michigan State. I assure you of that. Well, on the phone is Richard Paisner. He's the account manager for University Sector for Zipcar, and he's here to talk about new car sharing program offered at MSU. For more information, you can go to zipcar.com backslash MSU. Thank you so much for joining us today. Emily, thanks for having us. Have a great day. And now up next, uh, Terry Taylor, an MSU University Distinguished Professor of International or Internal Medicine, recently received the 2011 American Medical Association Foundation Excellence in Medicine Award for her work in with malaria in Malawi. Here's a conversation I had with Terry Taylor last summer when she first received a grant for her study. So talk about this project that you guys are doing. Well... This project is really the culmination of over 20 years' presence that Michigan State has had in Malawi, working on malaria. It was originally a vision of the founding dean of the College of Osteopathic Medicine at Michigan State, Mike Megan. And as a result of sort of being embedded there significantly for six months a year or more, we've been able to establish relationships that allowed us to write a grant that was convincing. Now, what percentage of people in Malawi do you believe have had malaria in their lifetime? Oh, everybody. Everyone. Everybody probably has it every year. Wow. And it's very common. And, and what I, I've... I've studied abroad in Mali, actually, not Malawi, but Mali, um, and uh, two people on the trip ended up getting malaria, and they were both very, very different. One was just kind of flu-like, and the other one was was pretty bad. <laughs> and that's actually one of the mysteries of the disease. Most of the deaths from malaria are in kids because they haven't yet had enough exposure to it. But even in a population of kids, there are some kids who will have a febrile illness that's like the flu, and there are other kids that go on to develop a life-threatening illness, and really no one knows why that is, why, 
why some kids get hit and not others. You know, is it the kids or is it the parasites or what is it? It's a mystery. And does malaria stay in, in, the, in the body for a lifetime? No. People who get it every year are reinfected by the bites of infected mosquitoes. There are a couple forms of the parasite that can linger in the liver for a long time and need a different medication, but the form of malaria that's devastating people across Africa is Plasmodium falciparum, and it can be completely eradicated with effective drugs. And how many people in Malawi do you believe go untreated? Well, most people will get treated eventually when they're sick enough. Um, there are, but one of the cool things that we'll be studying with this grant are people who are immune enough to have malaria infections and, and be asymptomatic. That, that is very common. People won't even know that they're infected, and they, those people are called the reservoir, and they can infect mosquitoes and, and sustain the life cycle of the parasite. So we will be studying people of all ages in several different areas of Malawi throughout the calendar year to see what happens in the dry season compared to the rainy season. And I understand you've done a lot of work in Malawi so far. Can you talk about that? The work that I've done so far isn't so related to this grant. We've been working in a large central hospital that is the teaching hospital for the medical school in Malawi treating the high end, you know, the kids who are really sick and unconscious. And this new grant will take us out of the hospital and into more remote health care settings and into the community. So we'll be able to really get at the root of what's going on with this disease. We'll go back, we'll go out in space and sort of back in time and try to catch people before they become really, really sick. And why was Malawi chosen for this grant to battle malaria? Well, 10 different grants were awarded covering all different malaria endemic parts of the world. So we were competing within um, the region of southern Africa. And I don't know why our grant was selected. I'm delighted that it was. But I think one of our strong, strong, points, strong points of our proposal um, was that we were able to identify three very different ecological areas within Malawi, and in fact, within a 50-kilometer radius of Plantire, the city where we work. So that means that logistically it's, it's easier to carry out the work because it's, everybody's so close. Now, I know when I, when I studied abroad in Africa, the, the treatments for malaria was, um, they were pills, and, and you could take, uh, there was a set of pills that you could take every day, or there was a set of pills that you could take once a week, and I, I heard from a lot of people, if you take the ones that were once a week, you would have just really, really wild, wild dreams. Um, can you talk about some of the different options that people have to treat malaria, and, and what some of this, those side effects are? Well, what you're talking about was malaria prevention. So you were talking about prophylaxis, drugs that you would take to have um, a sufficient level or concentration of drug in your blood to prevent blood infections taking place if you'd been bitten by a, an infected mosquito. And those drugs, some of those drugs overlap with treatment drugs, but not all. So um, treating people who are infected with malaria is a slightly different strategy than preventing malaria. Um, but the t you did describe two options. Um, and, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Every drug has side effects. And the once-a-week drug is called Larium. Its trade name is Mefloquine. And some people do have wild dreams with it. It's true. Um, I actually kind of liked the wild dreams when I took it, but... <laughs> the other drug, the daily drug, there are two daily drugs. One is doxycycline or tetracycline, and the other is um, a combination drug known as malarone. And they have, um, they have their shortcomings also. So you, it's, um, I always encourage people to try different drugs before they leave so that they can settle on one that will work well for them. And, and do, how many people do you believe in Mali or what percentage of the population actually take preventative drugs? Oh, well, you see, that's diff the strategy for a population of people is different 
than the strategy for travelers. Ah, I see. So it would be pretty daunting financially to put an entire population of people, an entire country on malaria prophylaxis. And if you did, the chances are very high that the parasite would evolve resistance. Oh, to the medication. Right, right. So we don't, people don't generally provide regular prophylactic treatment on a population-wide basis. But you, people who are traveling, the, you know, the MSU students um, abroad in Mali are such a small proportion of the overall population that it doesn't, it's not dangerous in terms of drug resistance to have them be on prophylaxis. So I know when two of the people in my study abroad group got malaria, um, they they went to go get treated, and they also um, had a hard time finding um, people in Africa that you know lived in Africa and got their their education and became a doctor. They had a hard time finding good places to go to get care. Um, is that an issue in Africa where where there's a loss of doctors, or the majority of the doctors come from overseas? Well, everything's everything changed in Malawi in 1991 when the medical school started. Uh, before that, the the common saying was there were more Malawian doctors in Manchester, England, than there were in Malawi. But now we, there's a medical school in Malawi, and we produce um, oh, between 20 and 80 new doctors a year, a significant proportion of whom stay on in Malawi. They may go to South Africa for a little training, but they stay on. And the health care that is provided in Malawi is improving significantly as a result of having the local graduates there. Now, what what is the treatment process once someone does get malaria? That's an excellent question. It depends on how old you are, interestingly. Um, so because it's the most dangerous in young kids, Young kids can be treated for malaria for free in Malawi anytime they get a fever. They don't even need a blood test to determine that it's malaria. They'll, they're just given a very effective drug known as, well, we call it LA, lumefantrine artemether. <clears throat> Older individuals, in theory, need a blood test because there are so many causes of fever, um, and it's less likely that a fever in an adult is malaria than it is in a kid. So in theory, adults should be tested, and if they're positive for malaria parasites, they would be treated with the same drug. However, if you're so sick that you're unconscious and you can't swallow, then you need an intravenous drug, and the treatment of choice in Malawi is quinine. Now, how, now talk a little bit about the history of malaria and how it has developed over the year over the of the years or or the centuries um i is it just someone had it in their blood and then one mosquito and then no, it just kind of probably you know there's a lot of different animal amphibian um malarias and so probably what happened was that the parasite existed in primates and then evolved to infect humans and in fact just in the past two or three years a known monkey parasite, Plasmodium nolzi, has begun infecting humans in Southeast Asia. So now there are five species of malaria that can infect humans, and the most recent of those, aside from nolzi, is Plasmodium falciparum, and that's why it makes us so sick. The other three have been in humans for longer and are milder. They've adapted so that, that they don't make us as sick. Because if you think about it, it's not really in the parasite's best interest to kill the host. The parasite wants to propagate itself. So the parasites have, that have been in us the longest are the most benign. Now, we in the U.S., we have had the threat of malaria, I think, around the time of World War II and after. Uh, no, and even at Michigan State. And even at Michigan State? And yeah, Michigan State was, has been closed a couple times. We're in a kind of a swampy part of Michigan. And, and how does that, how do you, uh, you know, get rid of the malaria? And do you think that the U.S. has, you know, can be prone to getting malaria again? We have, we have everything here that we need for malaria, a malaria epidemic, except a reservoir. 
what we were talking about earlier, except a group of people with parasites in their blood. And every few years there will be a little outbreak in Southern California um, as a result of Mexican farm workers, for instance, coming in with malaria parasites infecting local mosquitoes down in around San Diego, and then people who've never left San Diego get malaria. Um, the big breakthrough for us was that we were able, in the context of the Tennessee Valley Irrigation Projects, to spray and knock down our mosquito population long enough to treat everybody for malaria. So we had the resources in the U.S. to get on top of everything all at once. And once the reservoir of infected individuals was gone, the mosquito population was allowed to resurge. And the way that we prevent malaria from reoccurring in the U.S. is to have vigilant surveillance and um, experts at the CDC who can jump in as soon as we see any evidence of malaria in this country. So so talk a little bit, based on what we've done here in the U.S., are, are similar methods going to be used during your grant to battle malaria? And yeah, no, that's a great question. The reason we were successful in the U.S. is that we had the wherewithal, we had the resources to go wade into it um, all, with all guns blazing, and we just nailed it over the course of a couple of years. The, tra- the challenge about trying to do that in Africa is that it's a continent of many countries. So Malawi is a perfect example. Malawi is a landlocked country. So even if Malawi managed to control its malaria, infected mosquitoes would invade from all of the surrounding countries. So it's very tricky to... to eradicate malaria. The Gates Foundation has kind of thrown that out as as a challenge, but I think Africa is going to be the, what's the word, the bottleneck in, in recognizing that because the disease transmission is so intense there. So do you think that you'll be able to completely eradicate uh, malaria, and how long do you think it would, it would take? I don't, I'm not sure that we will be able to eradicate it. I would be happy to control it enough to diminish the mortality. So at the moment, one child dies every 30 seconds of malaria in Africa. And if we can make a dent in that, um, I'd be happy. I'm not so worried about minor flu-like illnesses that you know affect people once or twice a year. I think we can live with that. But I'd, I would love to be able to stanch the the death rate. All right. And now on the phone, I have Terry Taylor, the College of Osteopathic Medicine, and she's on the phone to talk about her research team's grant to battle malaria in Malawi. Thank you so much for joining you. Is there anywhere that people can follow this project? Yeah, we will be establishing a website eventually. Um, So I would suggest people check within the College of Osteopathic Medicine and look for a link to the website that we'll have. All right, well, best of luck with your research. Thank you so much. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. You're listening to Impact Exposure on... You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, Steve Leto is in the studio. He is a Michigan notable author whose book, Chrysler's Turbine Car, The Rise and Fall of Detroit's Coolest Creation, has been reviewed by the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Welcome to the show, Steve. It's good to be here. So tell me, tell me about this book. Well, you know, a lot of people don't realize that for 25 years, Chrysler actually spent a lot of time and a lot of uh, money developing jet-powered cars. And in 1953, they actually rolled out an operating jet-engine-powered car and uh, drove it around Detroit and proved that it could work. And they developed these cars over a period of time. And then in the 1960s, they built a fleet of jet-powered cars and uh, actually, as part of a huge, I guess, publicity stunt, loaned them out to the public. So you could get one of these cars for a few months, just John Q. American, and drive it for three months. And um, at the end of the program, you could turn it back in, and it was for free. And the cars were pretty cool because, among other things, they would run on anything that burned. 
So you could actually get one of these cars and drive it on gasoline if you wanted to, but you could also drive it on kerosene and diesel and vegetable oil. Chanel Number no. 5, tequila, VO5 hairspray. Um, and, and at the time, that wasn't spotted by most people as being a huge advantage because gasoline is only 20 cents a gallon. But now we look back on it and go, gee, why didn't somebody you know, do more with that? And in, in what, what was so special about the jet-powered engine? Does it make it, it really strong and fast? Or what are some other benefits of it's it? It's actually more that, believe it or not, it's simpler than a piston engine. It's just the piston technology has been around longer. But a jet engine is actually just a, a set of fan blades in a tube, and it spins. And so as a result of that, the moving parts don't shake back and forth, so it runs smoother, and it's got fewer moving parts. Uh, they say that a jet engine has about one-fifth of the moving parts compared to a piston engine. So in a roundabout way, they're simpler. Now, it's true that they're expensive to build, and that's one of the problems that Chrysler ran into, is they were trying to figure out a way to make these things less expensive. But they were working on it, and some people think that if they spent more time on it, they actually could have gotten these cars on the road. And how, how is it as far as, like, an environmentally friendly factor as opposed to a piston engine? Well, believe it or not, again, depending on what fuel you're burning, these things actually could have run very cleanly. You know, um, they ran some of these things on vegetable oil, for instance. And I have a feeling that vegetable oil probably puts out less uh, of the, the noxious chemicals that, say, burning, you know, diesel fuel does. Um, but one of the things that did kill the program was the smog standards of the 70s, and it's kind of complicated. But uh, right around the time that this program was really hitting its stride was when the EPA came out with new tailpipe emissions. And um, it caused problems across the board with every car on the road. But I think that if they'd spent time on this, they could have gotten these to burn just as cleanly or even more cleanly than a piston engine car. So are there any turbine cars around today? And my other question is, is do you think that um, the idea of having a, a jet-powered engine will ever come back? Well, that's interesting because uh, of the 55 cars that Chrysler built in the main program, um, they destroyed a bunch of them. There's a story behind that, too. But they did save nine of them that went into museums. So if you want to see one of these cars, for instance, the uh, uh, Gilmore Museum near Kalamazoo's got one on display. Uh, the Henry Ford Museum's got one on display in Detroit, or in Dearborn. Uh, Chrysler's got a couple at their, uh, one at their museum in Auburn Hills and then one at their um, uh, archives. And so you can see these cars. Um, but amazingly enough, there are people out there who are using this technology. For instance, Jaguar just put a show car on the road in the last 12 months that has a turbine engine that powers a generator, and the generator runs electric motors. And it's kind of a hybrid and we think of uh, gas electric hybrids as being like cutting edge right now. Well, even more cutting edge would be turbine electric hybrids, and they could do it. Uh, but again, it's a matter of how expensive is the technology, and piston engines are still cheaper. Now, Jay Leno wrote the foreword to your book. Yes. Tell me about your connection to Jay Leno. Well, I actually met Jay Leno in a roundabout way because I had written a book called Death's Door about the Italian hull disaster in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And uh, a newspaper in the Upper Peninsula ran an ad for it that said, uh, Death's Door makes a great Christmas gift. And somebody cut that ad out and sent it to Jay, and he ran it on his headlines segment as a funny ad because, let's face it, you know, don't, people don't think of this book as being a, a cheery Christmas gift when it's about 73 people dying in a stampede on Christmas Eve, most of them children. So um, when I'd heard that he'd done that, I took a copy of Death's Door and I gift-wrapped it and I mailed it to him. But I included in the package a manuscript of my turbine car book because I'd written the book, but I couldn't get it sold. I couldn't find a publisher to put it out because people were saying, well, it's a car book. And Jay called me and said, Steve, I don't understand. Why don't you get this book published? And I said, well, it's easy for you to say. I can't get it published. And he said, well, I'm going to hang on to your car just in case I, I can ever help you out. And about a year and a half ago, he bought one of the turbine cars. He bought one from Chrysler. And when he did that, he called me and asked me if I could hook him up with one of the engineers that I had interviewed for my book who knew how to do maintenance on these cars. He's got one. He needs someone who can work on it. So I got the two of them together, and then he said, well, if you're ever in California, I'll let you drive the car. So I was in California shortly thereafter. Uh, he let me drive the car. And while we were talking, he said, again, you know, you got to get this book published. And I said, again, I can't find a publisher. And he said, well, if it'll help you, I'll write a forward for you. And so he actually wrote the forward to the book. I then used that to get an agent, and the book is here. Excellent. What a wonderful story. And how yeah. was driving Jay Leno's car? It was neat. Uh, people say, what's the difference between a turbine car and a regular car? And the turbine car ran, it was smoother, but it sounded funny. 
and it's the funny sound that you really can't get away from because it whines like a turbine. Think about the jet engine sounds that you hear when you're taxiing around on the tarmac at like Detroit Metro. That sound that you hear is the same sound that you hear driving around in traffic in a turbine car. Um, it's not unbearably loud, it's just different. So as you drive down the road, people's, you know, people will turn their heads and look. Uh, I interviewed a guy who said that he one time took his dog for a ride in the car, and the dog howled along with the engine the whole time. And it's, it's, a, it's a different sound. It really is. But it, it was a really neat experience. I was terrified the whole time I was going to get rear-ended. You know, I don't want to be the guy who was in the car behind the wheel when you know, Jay's turbine car got destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, we made it back to the shop in one piece, and I was happy. And I, you know, that was a very, very cool experience. So without further ado, would you be willing to read a little excerpt from your book? And again, in the studio is uh, Steve Leto. He is um, the author of Chrysler's Turbine Car, The Rise and Fall of Detroit's Coolest Creation. Yeah, and I have to mention as a preface that um, they built 55 of the turbine cars at one point, okay? And 54 of them uh, were painted this turbine bronze. But another turbine car, which is one of the first few assembled, was painted white, and it was built in Italy. And they later painted blue racing stripes on it. It was the only car in the fleet not painted bronze, turbine bronze. Chrysler shipped the car to California where it uh, co-starred in a movie called The Lively Set with James Darren. And the film actually credited Chrysler Corporation's new gas turbine car as if it were an actor, uh, announcing that it was seen in action for the first time in a motion picture. On screen, the car raced on a road course with plenty of high-speed action and thrills typical of the era. The only Hollywood trickery in the film came from the fact that Chrysler refused to let any actors or stunt people drive the car. It could only be driven by a Chrysler employee named George Stetcher, who was the turbine mechanic who had accompanied the car to California. George can be seen behind the wheel of the screenshots that are not close-ups. Uh, Al Bradshaw, the regional manager in the turbine program, also accompanied the car on the set and maintained it as necessary. The car ran flawlessly but went through several sets of brakes, which Bradshaw had to replace during filming. Uh, one more piece of Hollywood deception came from a fake hood the filmmakers put on the car. Uh, they made another hood out of fiberglass and rigged it to come off during one race, hoping to add a bit of excitement to the story. The film was a throwaway otherwise. Youth in action, they live with zest, excitement, and romance, said the announcer. Uh, James Darren races and wins in his gas turbine car, although the audience probably suspected he would since he was the good guy. He even gives a few strangers a speech in the, uh, on the virtues of turbine cars, including their low exhaust emissions. Uh, some film historians with a revisionist bent have suggested that the lively set had good race scenes, if not a good plot, but they are mistaken. Although the appearance of the car on screen seems magical to watch, the race scenes were obviously filmed at low speed and sped up later, while the close-ups were shot in front of ridiculous fake backgrounds. And uh, it's, it's interesting, because I've had people tell me, they say, I remember that, that car was in a movie. And, and, yeah, they remember the car in the movie. They don't remember how bad the movie was. <laughs> so if you go to IMDb and look up the lively set, one reviewer said it was a boring piece of dreadful trash. But the car was nice. The car was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so in the studio, you have uh, Steve Leto. He's the, the author of Chrysler's Turbine Car. And I should also mention that you're also an attorney by day, author by night, maybe. And I specialize in consumer protection, which is lemon law. And I and so it's kind of funny. I sue the car companies all day long, including Chrysler. <laughs> I was just going to ask, how does this book relate to your work as a lemon law attorney? It, 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 well, you know, that's the thing. I work with cars all day long, you know, I, talking to consumers with defective ones. And then I write books about, you know, nice ones like this, so. And, and I'm curious, um, through researching and writing this book, can you talk about the auto company's politics and issues at the time of Chrysler's turbine car and how that may differ or relate to the politics and issues that we've seen the past three years? Well, some things never change. And when Chrysler was developing the turbine car in the 60s, they were spending millions of dollars developing this thing. And then one day, out of the blue, the EPA, a new, which is actually a fairly new federal bureaucracy at that time, simply announced, starting next year, we're going to have tailpipe emission standards, and we're going to limit how much carbon dioxide and uh, nitrates of oxygen and things like that that your tailpipe can emit. And the bureaucrats in Washington simply picked numbers out of midair. They didn't talk to anybody, and they just invented these numbers and said, everyone's got to abide by these numbers. And all of the car companies scrambled to try to meet these new standards. But it's kind of funny because to this day, the car companies still complain about how Washington bureaucrats will, in essence, design cars by fiat, despite the fact that they're not car designers, they're politicians. And so it's something that's, that's never really changed, and they complain about it to this day. 
Well, in the studio again is Steve Leto. He is the author of Chrysler's Turbine Car, The Rise and Fall of Detroit's Coolest Creation. Where can people go for more information about your book? Well, um, if you actually look on the Internet, uh, TurbineCar.com is run by a guy I know um, who was one of the guys who actually got one of these cars back in the 60s and got to drive it. And, and he has been enamored with the car. Think about this. His family got a car when he was 16 years old, and he got to drive a turbine car to and from high school. He's told me... <laughs> In the 45 years since then, he's never had that cool of a moment in his life as those moments were. And so he devoted this website, TurbineCar.com, to that. And he's gathered up photographs and information and documents. And it's, you know, he's not doing it for any purpose other than just it's a hobby for him. But it's a really cool place, and there's a lot of neat information there. All right. Well, excellent. Well, again, Steve, thank you so much for joining us tonight That's for been, the Michigan Storytelling Center. It's been a lot of fun being here. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact. Exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM.